What's going on, everyone? Welcome to episode 12 of the Conflict News Analysis Podcast. Today, I'm joined by my friend Chase Baker, also known as the Filthy American. Chase is a journalist who spent time on the ground in Ukraine. During this episode, we will discuss the situation, possible outcomes of this war, and much more. Hey, what's going on? Yo, can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you good. Can you hear me? Yep, perfect. I just want to make sure I'm actually using my Yeti microphone right now. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I can hear you perfect. Okay. So how's everything going, man? How you doing? Good, good. Doing really well. Just uh, back at home and, uh, you know, getting all my ducks in a row, uh, planning the next trips and all that stuff. Yeah. Um. What wh- What have you been up to? Where were you last? Uh, last place I was was in Ukraine uh, last year. It's like the last on the ground work that I did. But, um, you know, I, I basically the problem is, is it's just kind of a tough gig to make it in uh, as like working as a journalist on the ground, unless you come from like kind of a staple or really stable news organization. Uh, so I'm just kind of back at home, kind of working, trying to get set up financially so that hopefully one day I'll be able to get back out into the field and be, uh, you know, supported. Oh yeah, I can I can imagine when you're doing it kind of like independently, it's probably very uh, very costly, right? Oh yeah, it's um it definitely is. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, I I never did anything to do journalism for money. I did it purely for passion. So you know, for it to like you know not pay money or anything like that is fine with me. It's just you know it's just unsustainable in the long run, like just you know on paper. Right, right. Yeah, I understand. Uh, how how long were you in Ukraine for? Um, I was uh I was in I was there about two months. Uh, not consecutively though. Uh, I went the first time in May of last year for uh, around a month, and then I left um because of a job offer uh that had to do with uh doing filming documentary uh like kind of small documentaries and uh, doing journalism work. Came back to the States, uh, and then I went back to Ukraine on behalf of uh, uh, somebody that hired me to uh, go and film some documentary work in Ukraine. I went back for another month. So, oh, okay. Um, like, where where in the country were you? Like, what parts did you visit? Yeah. yeah. So, the first time I went, uh, I was pretty much exclusively in Kharkiv. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, when I was there the first time, that was when there was still, um, an offensive going on. So they were still fighting outside of Kharkiv. Uh, the Russians weren't anywhere close to the city itself. I mean, rel- relatively, but, um, there was still some active fighting going on when I was there. And then, uh, the second time I went, I went back to Kharkiv for not long at all, just a couple of days. And then, uh, the majority of my time was spent in the South, uh, in the Donbass area. So. Uh, like Kramatorsk, uh, Bakhmut, Seversk, um, the Dnipro, uh, and then of course on your way in and out, you kind of stop by Kiev and Lviv. For you know, you kind of have to. So, right, of course, of course. Yeah, we have uh, we have that mutual friend that was out there. He said he met you when he was out there. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's, he's, uh, he went he, back. He's there now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a really good guy. Um, real good guy. Uh, 
I still keep in contact with him. Uh, he's uh, out there again, yeah, like you said. Um, yeah, no, I, I was actually talking to him yesterday. He had some interesting stories to tell me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one, one, one day he needs to, uh, he really needs to write a book. Like he, uh, or like I, I envision this, like, you know, I want to have like, if I ever have a podcast of my own, I want it to be like, you know, four or five years from now, it's like everybody I've met through all these travel, all this travel I've done, just come together and sit on this, like around this gigantic table. And he'd definitely be one of them. Everybody just gets like, you know, has a couple of drinks and has a good time and like, you know, chops it up and talks about the old times and like, you know, like all the weird stories that happened and everything. Yeah, that'd be awesome, dude. I'd definitely listen to that. Um, when you were over in Ukraine, like, were you were you ever really close to the front lines or were you a little bit a little bit further back? Uh I I would say yeah. I mean, there was there, you know, there were days when I would, where I would go out, like, you know, either I had a, a somebody like help me get to the front, like somebody allow me. Cause the thing was, is like, as a, as a journalist, unless you have like a connection that allows you to go past it, there is always going to be kind of, at least when I was there. And I don't know if this is still the case. Um, but when I was there, there's kind of always going to be like this last checkpoint on the Ukrainian side. And then after that, it's really no man's land um now don't now when i say like the last checkpoint like that's still like you know maybe like a quarter kilometer or like half a kilometer from where like you know there, there's like small arms fire you know what i mean right um right. so like or maybe even close it's really fluid so it's kind of like you know oh you might not be like right on the front right now but you know you just never know type deal um but uh <laughs> it's kind of funny actually uh, my second time around, I went when I went back to Kharkiv. One of the reasons why I didn't stay there for that long was just because we couldn't get any like frontline access. We couldn't get like close to the front at all. Um, so what would happen was is you would go to like literally any checkpoint, like headed to whenever you're headed towards the front, like on any road, and you get stopped. You'd be like, okay, like you know, we're like presa, presa. When I hand them our passport and our press credentials, and they would look at it and they'd be like. Hey, so you got it. They basically explain you have to go to like the it's like some like journalism bureau in Kharkiv city and get like a get like a an escort, basically like somebody like to chaperone you around the front or something. It wasn't like anybody like military, like something like that. It was just like somebody to watch over you, um, which I thought was I mean, I understand understandable. But like, you know, it was all this like we only had we had a finite amount of time there. So I'm like, you know, I'm not going to sit around Kharkiv and wait for this to go through and all this stuff. And so. I was with it was me, Charles, Matt Williams, and Stefan, and we and so we just because uh, Willie had just left uh, Willie and Stefan had left the dome. I just left uh, the dome boss, and so once they saw like, the situation, the checkpoints in Kharkiv, they were like, "Yo, yo, let's just go back to the dome boss because they don't care what you do down there. <laughs> you can do whatever you want." So like, <laughs> we went from like getting denied like at all these different checkpoints in Kharkiv Oblast. It, like it was it was so tight bro like you couldn't do anything you couldn't go through any checkpoint and um i remember we went down to the we went down to the donbass we as soon as we were on the road entering kramatorsk and like kramatorsk at the time and it still is like this like it's not on the front but it's pretty it's close enough to where it gets hit every once in a while um but we get up to the we get up to the checkpoint to enter the city and then the dude, we like kind of, we just show, we're about to hand him our passports and he sees that like, we're, we're like, uh, we were, it was two Americans, a Swiss guy and Australian. 
and he just sees that he just goes he like straight up says this he goes good luck and then like that was the thing dude like from for, from that point on like even like on the road to bakhmut or like Saversk or any place it was like super hot like you know getting hit and shelled and stuff like they wouldn't they wouldn't care they didn't want to look at your passport they would literally just say good luck bro like you, you shouldn't be here type deal Jeez. it was pretty funny <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was really a funny difference because like we went from car key where they're like no you need to have like this chaperone and all this stuff and we get down to the bottom and they're just like yo go ahead bro. best of luck man like i don't know why you're here oh my god <laughs> that's um that's unnerving i guess <laughs> when when you were over there did you get to talk i mean i'm sure you did right you talked to a lot of the soldiers right yeah, I mean, I did what I I did when I went as, when I was able to for sure. Um, definitely talked to more of the soldiers uh, on my first trip than the second. Um, mm. You know, I, the one thing I remember about about like talking to the Ukrainian soldiers is uh, just like how you know, like, don't get me wrong. Like when I was there, I was twenty two, right? Like yeah. I'm a young guy as well, but like seeing like dudes that look like like they're like junior in high school or something you know like real baby face and i'm like look i'm i'm really young i see these guys and i see some of these soldiers i'm like bro you don't even look 18 i don't know that was like the one that always jarred me so that's crazy i ah, man i mean i guess they they had to fight right i mean i guess they kind of got called up crazy yeah yeah man what what Uh, was like what was like their morale like when you were talking to them? Like, what what were they kind of? How were they feeling? Oh, dude, morale was all like every time I met soldiers. There was only one time where I met soldiers where they didn't have like some. They weren't like joking around, like cutting up, kind of laughing a little bit. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, so I mean, it was overall pretty good. The only time whenever there was like some real stern looks, like it was like, yo, these dudes have like the thousand yard stare or whatever. Um. Yeah was it was it was actually the first time i got close to any fighting it was uh south of kharkiv and the guy i was with who was he was delivering humanitarian supplies along the front line along like all on like frontline towns and stuff and uh we stopped by this like ukrainian like it was kind of like an outpost it really wasn't a forward operating base it, i guess it was it was like there was like this one forward operating base on like the front line or whatever and like I was there and they were pointing out like Russian where the Russian positions were. They said, like, Oh, it's like 500 meters that way, like through the field or whatever. That's where the Russians are like in that tree line. And I remember like, it was super quiet. Like it was weird. Cause I'm like, dude, if I'm this close, like this is like, I should be hearing some stuff going on. Cause like when I was in Kharkiv itself, like I would hear more stuff going on and that's like, you know, 10 kilometers from the front. But uh, I remember some soldiers walking up to the fob i don't know if they had just gotten off of like a patrol or what they were doing they came up they came up into the uh into like a little building and they were like these dudes look rough bro that, but that's like the only time i've ever seen like over there where there was like like low morale so yeah oh uh, gotcha isn't it like isn't it crazy the way they're fighting in these trenches like like you said, you know, you kind of looked across and, and they were like in the tree line or whatever. Like, isn't that crazy, dude? Like, it, it, I don't know. It's insane to me. Like, they're fighting like it's World War One over there. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and, you know, that's the, that's the thing is like whenever, you know, whenever I was over there, something that kind of like, you know, really like was a, became apparent to me. I was like, oh, my gosh, man. There's, it's just like especially like, you know, in, in like the South, uh, 
or pretty much all of Ukraine is super flat, right? Um, but like, you know, there's certain areas where you see it's just like, it's just like these fields of like grass or wheat or, you know, whatever. And then there's just like one tree line on either side. And like, that's how you understand. It's like, that's how they're fighting. It's like kind of like from tree line to tree line. So like to cross in that open space to try and advance on like the enemy uh, and like, and, and whenever they're like entrenched in a defended, pos de defended position, that's gotta be like brutal. Um, I couldn't imagine doing that. Yeah, that's nuts. And then, and then you got to think they also had like the urban fighting, like in Bakhmut, that took. I mean, that that was crazy. Um, yeah, yeah, man. It it Bakhmut was for real a meat grinder. I saw these videos come out recently. I don't know if you've seen them. Like I I saw them maybe three days ago. It it's for some reason the most brutal videos I've seen from this war have all come out and like the, I've all seen them come out in like the past week and a half. But this one video in particular, um, now this is as far as I know, the video and like what it claims to be of is not been verified, but basically it, it, it was, uh, it claimed to be, it was posted on, I want to say it was a Ukrainian telegram channel, a pro Ukrainian telegram channel. And they were showing how like the Russian side was disposing of bodies that were in Bakhmut. And bro, they had like, like, you know what a pallet is like a pallet, like a, like, you know, like you ever, you ever like, you know, like warehousing and like forklifts and stuff. Yeah, dude. I saw that. I saw what you're talking about. Oh, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. dude, that was grueling. And then they just had like, they had a, they had like a, like a, a garbage truck filled. Yeah. Right. Yeah. With like, just like human soup. And they, they were dumping all of it into this mass grave. And my, my conclusion was, I was like, I would assume is just like, and you know, the thing about it was, is like, you know, I saw a couple of like, you know, rotting corpses and stuff and it made sense. It's like, what well, that probably was, those were just bodies that were like out around Bakhmut, you know, where the fighting was and they just never got picked up and they were just decayed really bad. And so they just kind of tossed them all together. And then they just like dumped all that into that mass grave, but yeah, it was brutal. Yeah, dude, I, I remember seeing that and I was like, I, I, I think I just closed Telegram after I saw that video. I was like, yeah, I'm not, I, I'm done with this. for No, I, yeah, like, <laughs> you know, when you hear like the, the term like, oh, it's a meat grinder. It's like, no, like that's literally a meat grinder. Yeah, the, the casualties coming out of that city, like uh, insane. Like yeah, the fighting was so crazy. Uh yeah. Which is so, which is so weird. Um, I mean, because when I was in Bakhmut, like you got to understand, like Bakhmut is such a, like it, it's not. I mean, it is technically a city, but it's so small. Like it's not like it's not like something like uh, like the Dnipro or something like that. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, it, it's like it, it's just actually just like kind of like a an average American town almost. Like in my opinion, wow. um, it's just like for some reason they were like this is strategically important i mean it's not for some reason but like you know they were like we're, we're gonna hold here heavy and it's become like the focal point of the war for the past like seven months or like almost eight months now yeah i mean you might know this better than me but do you think it had a significant strategic advantage i mean i know there were some highways leading in and out um but i don't know like what are your thoughts on that Okay. Uh, yeah, it definitely is. It definitely is strategic. Let me actually pull up a map just so like I don't sound like an idiot right now whenever I start naming off this stuff. No, that's all good. Um, but from my understanding, like you know, basically the way it seems to me is that like you know, Bakhmut is on the road to Kramatorsk, right? 
Right. And if they were able to take Bakhmut, then that means that like the line, uh, the Russian line would would effectively move up and envelop everything to the right, to the immediate right and left of Bakhmut. And then it would just kind of like be solidified and then they could push on Kramatorsk and then go from there. Um, it was just like the reason why it's just strategically important is because like solidifying that area of Ukraine uh, would require the taking of Bakhmut to take all the other smaller towns around it. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I was thinking that like I was looking at some maps too when the, when the fighting was really popping off there and I was like, okay, well, it looks like they'd be able to take over these smaller little like villages and towns. But I wasn't sure because, like, there were there were reports coming out that were like, "Oh, Bakhmut's not that strategically important." Then some were like, "It is strategically important." So I, I don't know. It was a clusterfuck for a little while. I, I mean, it, don't get me wrong, it is, but like, I, I think that you know the Russian strategy is just kind of, and I'm just kind of just spitballing at this, but I assume it's something like, like the the forces, the Russian forces that were actively engaged in the war. That was their focus, while the rest of the Russian forces kind of like regrouped, recuperated, and then they would be used at some other time, which I think they still haven't been used yet. Um, it'd be interesting to see if there's uh, so another uh, front opened up from Belarus. That That's kind of like what's on my mind right now. Right. I was thinking that, too. And I, I was talking to someone about it yesterday. I mean, there might be if they come down from the north, like from Belarus, that would be interesting. Um, I don't even, I don't know what Wagner groups even doing right now. Like who even knows what they're doing? Um, <laughs> last I heard, they, last I heard, they... yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say like, after they did their little March, you know, and then I don't know, it just ended so anticlimactic. <laughs> I was pissed. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think it's weird to be mad about that kind of thing, but I was also mad. I'm like, bro. I'm like, I remember it was on a, it was Friday, like around like this time Friday and started seeing all the stuff and we're like, yo, 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 why Prigozhin's going off right now? Like he's talking about like ministry of defense tried to bomb is like one of Wagner's camps or something, or they did bomb it. And yeah. then, and then like, cause the thing was, is like, I, I remember like going late into the night, like around like 12 or like one in the morning. I can't remember exactly when it broke. But everybody was just like, oh, like Prigozhin is saying all this like crazy things like, oh, we're going we're on the road to Rostov on Don and we've shot down Russian helicopters and all of a sudden it's like there's zero video evidence that, you know, we just don't know if he's like if he's lying right now or not. And then it wasn't until like the videos dropped of them boys pulling up in front of like one of the Ministry of Defense buildings in Rostov on Don. We were like, oh, yo, he's not lying. They're actually there. <laughs> dude they pulled up hard too they they were like jumping out like tactically moving in on the building i'm like what the fuck is going on over there <laughs> oh yeah yeah it was it was crazy man and then you know you know the interesting thing that i didn't realize until like a couple days after it all happened is that apparently u.s intelligence knew that it was going to happen uh a, a fair amount before it did happen like you know like four or five days and they actually informed some uh, U.S. congressional members about it. Uh, they, but they, they did not want to say anything publicly about it, about them knowing that it was going to happen, because they believed that if they did, it would allow the Kremlin to uh, essentially be like, oh, well, look, the Americans knew it was going to happen because they provoked it. And this is actually like, a, like an American like provocation or like PSYOP or whatever. 
Yeah. Yeah, dude, I've seen all the CIA memes. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yo, when it when it first happened, that that kind of did like that thought did kind of creep into my head. I'm like, is this a CIA fucking plot right now? Like what's going on here? <laughs> you never no. know. You know. Yeah, I mean, it would, <laughs> <laughs> it would be a perfect I'd be like, you know, if I was if that was some like weird like, if that was some like intelligence psyop or something, that would have been like if it, if it pulled off and destabilized all of Russia into like a civil war, like that would have been like the psyop of the century. Yeah, dude. Imagine. Oh my God. That'd be so crazy. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. So, so I, like Ukraine, are they, they're in the middle of their counteroffensive right now, right? Yeah. As far as I know, that's kind of been what Fairby's saying. Uh, and then I, to be, to be totally honest, I haven't been following the counteroffensive super closely um just because there hasn't been much news out of it from from what i've seen it's just kind of i think it's kind of stalled and they haven't made the gains they've wanted to make um that's not saying that they won't uh you know in the coming months but just as of right now uh i know that they actually did some they've they've had some success actually kind of pushing back towards bakhmut but yeah they made made small gains around bakhmut i mean from what I from what I've seen, like you're right, there isn't there hasn't been much uh, news coming out about it, but um, it looks like they're making some gains. But yeah, no, it, it's not like I don't know. It's not exactly how I thought it was going to go. I thought they were they would pick up a little bit more by now, you know. But it, yeah. it's hard. Like it's hard to it's hard in these type of things because the Russians are now kind of they have I guess better defensive positions or whatever so it's probably harder to break through now oh yeah no doubt i mean i just remember like hearing about the counteroffensive for like you know people were talking about it like oh it's gonna happen and everything and then it wasn't until like uh i mean i knew it was probably coming and then it was like the rush like the ukrainian like ministry of defense on their twitter was like posting like almost like high video-esque things about like it's coming or something i'm like no yeah. bro <laughs> yeah dude everything's just on social media now just... well that's the, that's the thing is like i've actually thought about this it would be an interesting thing to write about you know depending on how this war ends or if it spills over into like a you know a larger conflict hopefully not but if it ends like you know in a year you know whatever it looks like uh something that'd be like a really interesting like book or something to research in general just kind of like look at meme warfare so it's like this is the first yes. ever war where like meme warfare has come into play. Yeah, that's true. And it's it's crazy too because of all like just the open source like information that you can gather, you know, just scrolling through your phone. Like like dude, if I really like if I sit down one day, because I'm kind of busy like you know doing stuff, but like some days I'll get time to just sit down and really look around. And dude, I, I just know what's going on, like in this war, like the whole day, what's going on. You just go through Twitter, go through Telegram, and it's all just right there, you know. It's 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 crazy to me. Like this, it's crazy how much coverage you can, how much information you can find, um, just through social media. There's just no more OPSEC anymore. <laughs> <laughs> nah, yeah. Uh, whenever there is gone. like a... <laughs> exactly, exactly, there's just no OPSEC. <laughs> Yeah, crazy. I know. I, I always like think about that just with like future conflicts. I'm like, damn, there's just literally zero OPSEC anymore. Like, what's what is what would like a war with China look like? I don't know. It's, it's not something I'm trying to see, you know. 
Well, yeah, that's the thing is like it's so hard to control whenever the average soldier just has a telephone and, you know, I'm sure there is like an attempt to control it as much as like, you know, either military can in terms of like, you know, disseminating compromising information, photos or like videos. But it's just so hard whenever you have like a bunch of dudes and they just like, you know, they're fighting in a conflict and there's definitely like, you know, downtime or, you know, even when there's not downtime, it's like, yo, check out this crazy video I took yesterday or, you know, anything like that. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Um, Are you planning to go back out there anytime soon? I don't, I don't have any plans right now to go back. Uh, Like in terms of like everybody I knew and that I worked with over there, uh, they've kind of, uh, everybody's kind of gone on. Uh, and they're not there anymore. It's just like, it's the thing is, is it's really, it, it's difficult. And I could be wrong on this, but I assume it's probably gotten a lot more difficult to like uh, gain access to anything that's like, you know, justifies your time being there. Um, and, you know, the thing was, is like at the end of my second trip, and this is something like, you know, I just, I don't know, like, you know, there is some like, I wish I had done more like, you know, in terms of like interviewing people and stuff, but it's just so difficult whenever there's a language barrier and you don't have like, if, if you don't have a fixer that can translate, um, you, you kind of just there taking photos, which is, which is totally fine. Um, but you know, it's just difficult to do quality stuff over there without like a, a big name behind you or a qual or a large budget. I mean, there are people I know that are just absolutely, you know, amazing journalists that are still over there doing great things. But, um, I just don't see if I went back over there that I'd be able to do anything like very impactful in terms of like, you know, uh, telling, a you know, information or stories. Right. Right. Do you think like, how are they, how are the supply lines over there? Like are, are the right things getting to the right people? Like you think like the right equipment's getting to the front lines or, or like what's going on logistically? Um, you know, I've heard when I was, when I was first there, I heard, I heard stories unverified stories um from people who were kind of like who who like you know as far as i knew were kind of in the know uh about there being like issues of supplies that would come in from the uh west and then they wouldn't they would kind of like stop in kiev and there'd be like some some corruption at certain levels and they wouldn't make it all the way to the front um i can't speak to that now um, but I would assume that like, you know, things have probably tightened up a lot, um, and the war efforts kind of become a lot more consolidated and things are getting where they need to go. Um, but yeah. 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 Cause I mean, you know, you, you would hope that, that the front lines got all the best stuff and you know, they weren't just sitting on all that, that good shit in Kiev or anything. <laughs> all the Gucci gear. Yeah. yeah. All, the, <laughs> all the high speed shit. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, like, so, like, I know this might be a tough question, but like, how long do you think this this war can go on? Like, from what you saw out there, like, do you think it is this is just one of those things that can go on for years? Yeah, I think I, I think the way things are painting out, I think it very likely will go on for uh, probably like two two years uh, around that time frame, two years more. Uh, the thing is, is that it's the war is in like a, a stalemate right now, and there hasn't been any real breakthrough on either side. Um, you know, uh, late, late last year and early this year, the big talk was like, you know, 
once summer comes, that's when like everybody's going to start moving their troops. And it's going to be like the big offensives on either side. And I'm not saying they haven't done that. It's just, you know, it's just a stalemate. Um, so, I mean, there for the war to end quickly, which is <laughs> what I really would love to happen. Like, I would, it's weird to think about because Ukraine is not my, it, I have no connection to it other than like, you know, people I know. Um, but just, like, I don't know, I would love to see this war to end as, as quickly as possible and for there to be, a re, you know, some type of resolution. Uh, whatever form that takes um but it, for that to happen there would need to be there would need to be some type of uh huge breakthrough on on either side uh f you know either militarily or something to do with like uh i don't know that's the thing is like the whole destabilization of, of like you know the the current russian government from from like wagner's like attempted okay rebellion coup whatever you want to call it like semantically uh the, you know that was like one of those things where like when that was going on i'm like yo this could end the war like right here this could be it and like it could be over you know something like that but like in its current state of just kind of like you know the whole trans trench warfare thing mostly in the dome boss I, I don't see it ending you know for you know for around like two years from now right yeah they they probably could just keep fighting the way they're fighting now I mean, it's got to be super costly, though, for the Russian side, too. I mean, it's got to be expensive to to finance a war like this. I don't know. And I mean, oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. And that's the thing is like that. That's what that's something that I've thought about a fair bit is that, you know, at what point does uh, the Kremlin get fed up? At what point do they do they really like, OK, listen, the gloves are off. We're going to do something totally out of pocket right now to like, you know, get this thing moving because we can't just be doing this anymore like we got to get something going on this is like we're expending too many resources uh on this war we're not seeing the like you know we're, we're not seeing any any like positive any positive uh results on our end that's what's got me concerned because like you know i think to me ukraine can hold out in it in the, like as of right now for a very long time um there might be like you know some like switching of hands of certain like you know smaller cities or towns but um you know i think that the russians are gonna have to they're gonna have to not do something drastic but they're gonna have to like really up the ante to like if they want to get this thing moving so that's what's got me concerned whatever like form that takes i don't know um but i, I think that like at a certain point the russians are going to be like look or the kremlin rather is going to be like you know we got to do something big to like you know try and change the tides yeah, that's the whole concern with like them using a nuke or something. Because it's like, yeah, yeah, something like that would be pretty crazy. Chernobyl uh, 2.0. Yeah, for real. Yeah, a couple of days ago, people were concerned about that that power plant in Zaporizhia. There, there was like, I don't know, maybe intel coming out that there might be some type of attack on it or something. Um, yeah, I remember. I remember being in Dnipro, uh, it was like oh, probably 11 months ago now. And Dnipro is really pretty, pretty close to the, that nuclear power plant. And it was like that night, I remember we were in our hotel and everybody was talking about like, yo, something's coming. They're going to like blow up the nuclear power plant. And me, Willie, Charles and Stefan, we were all playing like, okay, if this happens tomorrow, like we kind of realized that like at that point it's not even about 
like we just need to get out out of the country as fast as possible because it's very likely that there will be mass hysteria throughout the country and everybody will just kind of go on like it'll be like the purge almost of everybody just trying to get to poland or like uh bulgaria or something you know oh yeah for sure for sure yeah that <sighs> i <laughs> i can't even imagine like what it would be like if, if that happened in ukraine Crazy. oh right <laughs> it would be wild yeah yeah oh man what so like so if there so if there was some kind of agreement made to end the war which I don't know I'm kind of like I I kind of don't really think that there would there is going to be an agreement anytime soon. Uh both sides pre- seem pretty uh set in their ways. But let's say that there was some kind of agreement. I mean even even when the war ends like how do you how does Ukraine rebuild? Like how do they if they're able to get like a lot of their land back, how would they even be able to rebuild all that, all that destruction, you know? Yeah. I mean, that, that's definitely a, a really good question. I I think that the answer depends heavily on how the world, how the war pans out. Um, let's say like, I don't know, there's some resolution reached and it's like Russia keeps what it's taken, which I highly doubt would happen, but like Russia keeps what it's taken uh, and like, you know, the borders change and all that stuff and the war is over. I think that there would be an incredible amount of Western aid that came in to uh, rebuild the country. Right. Um, but I mean, from, you know, the thing is, is that like, you got to realize like the majority of Ukraine, they haven't like a lot of the majority of Ukrainian cities, don't get me wrong. They still get, you know, the, you know they still get the occasional like you know, missile strike or drone strike or whatever but like they've they've life has kind of returned to like relative nor normality uh for a while now i mean like you know kiev hasn't had russians on its doorstep since like geez like uh you know almost 14 months ago so i mean what i'm saying is is i i think that a lot of these ukrainian cities that were damaged have have already begun the process of rebuilding and um the, the main the main places that are like going to be like the they need the most uh the the most aid in rebuilding would be the ones that like are just currently being fought over in the donbass right yeah and i'm sure a lot of the cities that the russians have taken control of a lot of them are probably just completely destroyed now um yeah yeah the the one that's really interesting is some I actually haven't looked at this in a while would be to see like how how uh, the Russians have like rebuilt if they have at all like rebuilt infrastructure in Mariupol that would be interesting that would actually be a pretty good like uh, like historical case in terms of like okay this is what would likely happen in like controlled the cities that Russians control that were destroyed yeah it's interesting now now I'm curious now I want to look into that because I, I like I wonder. Because I, I was, I've been thinking about it on the Ukrainian side, but I wonder what it would be like on the Russian side, like how they would rebuild. I don't even know. I'm sure. It yeah. would take, I'm sure it would take much longer, and it would probably be much more like it would be. It wouldn't be as good, but I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah. I just, man, there's a there's a lot going on over there. Uh, like, the thing is, is that, like, you know, the, like I said, the war is at a stalemate right now. And, you know, the big question is, is, like, you know, when does when does the next, like, when when does the big thing happen that changes, the that really changes the, like, you know, the direction of this war in either side? Um, right, right. 
Yeah, I wonder I wonder what the Ukrainians would have to do. I mean, if they started their counteroffensive, uh, I mean, cuz the I remember the first counteroffensive they had was they took back a lot of land. I remember like over it was like a year ago now, they took back a decent amount of land and then, you know, since then it's just been yeah, it's just been a stalemate. So, I don't know. I, I'm curious I'm curious about that as well. Yeah, um, I I remember that. Yeah, that that counteroffensive was actually really impressive because they took back pretty much everything outside of, like everything in Kharkiv and then up north as well. They just pushed everything, all the Russians back to uh, the border, and then and yeah, then, uh, it was wild. Honestly, <laughs> could that be? Could that have been because I was more like maybe the Russians weren't as like they didn't have their defenses built up as much back then because that was a little closer to the beginning of the war, so. I don't know, maybe yeah, I, I, yeah, I think it was probably that, and then also like internally on the on the Russian side, there's probably a decision made to like not necessarily like fully abandon those positions, but kind of not not give them as much attention as as uh, what as what they were doing in the south in the Donbas. Okay, okay, I got you, I got you. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. I wonder, like, ah, man. I, I don't know. I just, I, I really, I just, I wonder how it's going to turn out. So, so like, what do you think, um, what do you think like the Russian like plan is like, okay, let's say they get to the war ends, whatever they get to keep all their land. Like, w- like what's their plan? Like, what wh- what do you think? I don't know. Like, what do you think that their whole end goal of this is? I I think with the things, the way that things currently stand, I think that, I think that the Kremlin, uh, in particular, and this is just my opinion. I think that uh, anything less than total victory over Ukraine uh, is unacceptable. I think that if they had, if they took their current, uh, if if they just, it's like let's say, like hypothetically, if like tomorrow there's a ceasefire and like you know there was a peace treaty signed or whatever. And Russia just kept what it has. First of all, I don't think the Ukrainians would accept that. They're like very gung ho right now. Um, but the Russians, the Kremlin themselves, I think that you know their opinion is is that uh, failure to take Ukraine totally is. I mean, they've already like really done this on the world stage. Be like, hey, we're actually our military actually really sucks right now. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> like, you know, like, like it's like think about this. It's like if they if they don't take all of Ukraine. And they just like kind of concede what their original plan was. It, it just it just shows how how weak the not weak but yeah like disorganized and how unorganized and weak the Russian military is. Um, I mean, because think about this like look look back during look back at like you know America's uh, the U.S. war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Like, granted, we def- we had like the support of other countries, but we were able to take we were able to take Iraq, like Iraq and like just stay, take over the entire country, essentially a little in a little over a month. Um, now, granted, there was all that, you know, there was a lot of insurgency afterwards during the occupation, but like that, that's a country halfway around the world from the United States itself. And yet, of course, the United States has bases across the world to be able to project power in, in instances like that. But I mean, bro, 
uh, the Ukrainian military, when this war first kicked off, should, in my opinion, should not have been able to like go head to head and successfully defend against the Russian military, just on paper. Like, you know, everything everybody knew about how strong the Russian military was and how what the Ukrainian military was like. It's like, you know, it'd be kind of be like Iraq 2.0. Plus, like Russia's right there. They border each other. It should be really easy for Russia, the Russian military to come in, you know, fight for a month, two, three months, whatever, and then just take the entire country. But it, it's not like it hasn't. It's been the total opposite almost. Yeah. Um, like, they, not only do they border the country, they were building up their forces along the border for like two months in advance. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. How are you guys doing over there? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the failure to take Kiev was the big one. That was probably the the failure when they retreated from Kiev. That was like, oh, we screwed up. And that's when they knew. Like, that's when the Ukrainians knew. It's like, okay, we got a fighting chance. We could hold them. Right, right, right. Because, like, before the war started, I mean, like, like, right before the war started and, like, right after it began in those, like, initial weeks, you know, everybody was just like all the every every like you know analyst and everybody that was had a like you know opinion on this war was just saying, yeah, it's gonna be, it's gonna be it's gonna be like you know just a you know the war's gonna be you know done in over you know like a month or something like that and it, that wasn't the case like everybody everybody did not expect this like nobody expected this and. I don't know. It's it's really mind blowing, but it's just. I mean, if if yeah, I'm pretty sure any everybody in the Kremlin is just like this is. It's not shameful. It's just like, I don't know because I think that, you know this kind of goes back to like I've said this before. I, I was I've always been confused, and I still kind of am of like you know how. How the Kremlin and Putin, could be, could could go through with this and and not be successful like how do they how do they not know the actual state of their military and like my conclusion the answer i have right now is just like putin kind of got yes manned into this and he was just kind of told by everybody like yeah dude the military is all good like you know everything's running properly you've got a great military this is like a piece of cake grow walk in the park and then so the idea was is like this is just kind of what i believe happened is that like if we if the russians go into ukraine they could take the country so quickly that the like the world response to the war because like russia is a global pariah right now like you know everybody not everybody but most countries the very vast majority of countries uh you, you have isolated them they don't it you know russia has been isolated from the rest of the world so i think their plan was was essentially to come in take the country so quickly but that by the time the war was said and done and Russia had taken Ukraine, uh, the world was so, would still be kind of talking about how to correctly respond to Russia's, you know, uh, war. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, as far as like, how did, how did Putin not know that his military wasn't ready or whatever? I think you're exactly right. I think he just got yes, man. And I think a lot of his advisors or whatever, they just, they were just hyping everything up because I don't know, they're probably scared of him or whatever. And they just want to, they just want to yes man him and, and be like, Oh, everything's running great. We're the greatest military, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, the, <laughs> that seems to be, you know, Russia, I mean, they, they have a, a lot of firepower, but their military structure is clearly awful and their logistics is, is pretty awful too. So yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and I think that... And I'm not saying this is I'm not I'm not trying to glorify Wagner Group at all, but you know for the past year up until their uh, failed rebellion slash coup whatever you want to call it, they have been the most effective uh, fighting force on the Russian side, um, and I think a reason for that is likely because they were able to kind of cut through uh, the bureaucracy. And a lot of the corruption that likely plagues the uh, the Russian military, and so that's why they were able to be a lot more effective uh, in in fighting. But my my question now is, is like now that Wagner is gone, what does that look like for the Russian side? Like, I just don't. I mean, like is the way the regular Russian military has been performing throughout this entire war. I mean, would they even be able to successfully like you know advance even like you know more? Like, I just I don't know. Right. Yeah, and you had mentioned before that, like, you know, total victory over Ukraine. I mean, even if, even if let's say, like, they were able to, to do that, wouldn't there also, in, in Ukraine, there would probably be some kind of insurgency there, too. So then they would have to try and hold that country. Because, you know, there would be groups that are like, nah, like, fuck this. Like, we're Ukrainians, you know, we're proud, we're not Russians. And there would be an insurgency. I mean... So I always think about it, I always question them, like, what the hell was their end game? Like, what were they thinking? Like, what was their plan? Like, they were going to steamroll, but then, okay, you take you take the country, but then there's going to be people that are, like, that don't agree with it. Like, did he really, was he really getting intel that, like, Ukrainians were like, wow, like, we really wish that Russia would come in and, like, liberate us right now. Like, is that what he right. was thinking? Like, I, I, I feel like that's what the intel he was getting. It, it very well might have been. And going off of your, your point about there likely being an insurgency in Ukraine, even if Russia occupied the entire country. Um, I mean, Ukrainian military, I'm, I'm assuming now it's probably not as uh, prevalent. But when I was there and like pretty much the entire time I was there and, and towards the beginning of the war, uh, a fair bit of the Ukrainian uh, of Ukrainian forces were made up of like different militia groups that weren't regular military. Um, you know, like they were like Fry Corps, for example, you know, they, 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 you know, you know, Pravi sector, they were like, you know, right wing, they were right wing, right wing militia who was receiving Western aid and, and successfully defending Kharkiv against the Russians. Um, and there are like numerous groups like this who, you know, weren't regular Ukrainian military or aren't you regular Ukrainian military. And like, like they would be perfect candidates to be in insurgent groups once if they're if the country was occupied. Right. So just another thing that you kind of just brought up there too. So there were there are like militias getting funded by Western aid in Ukraine. What does that look like when the war ends, though? Like that that kind of concerns me a little too. Like if these if these groups like. Some of them are right-wing groups and they are dangerous. I mean, what happens after the war? Like, they're probably not just going to give up all their their weapons, right? Yeah, that, that's something that I've talked with people about, too, is, like, what happens when the war ends? And it, you know, let's say if the war ends in a way that's positive for Ukraine, um, do do the militias themselves? And, like, you know, by the way, like, you know, I've, I've, I've you know, seen militias that, 
that weren't like right wing. Like there's a lot, it's really like all over the spectrum. It's kind of like they kind of gather around like a certain like religious or political ideology. Like there's like a, like it's like Orthodox Christian militia. It's like, you know, all this stuff. It, it's not all right wing, but it, it, that is definitely a question is like, do they give up their arms once the, the war is over? Um, I don't know. Cause if you remember during the, the, during in 2014, during the Maidan protests, that was like one of the things was, I, I believe it was Azov. Azov. They yeah. Were yep. yeah. They were talking about going on like a, a, an offensive. If, if like, I think it was, if the, if the current president didn't step down or something like that. Uh, so I don't know. Like, that's the thing is like, is, does it kind of just, does Ukraine after the war, I honestly don't have like a solid question, but that's definitely, you know, something that like needs to be thought about is like what happens to all these militia groups. Does that, does that further destabilize Ukraine as a country or will they end up, you know, kind of being like, yeah, we're all Ukrainians. The war's over. We're kind of done. Uh, let's all go home now. Yeah. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like it go either way, man. Like, I feel like it could go either way in that situation because there definitely is, you know, because of this war, like more of a sense of, of nationalism within U Ukraine and amongst Ukrainians. But, you know, there are always those groups out there that you, you just you never know, you know. Um, yeah, I, I, I might, my, my, you know, what I, I what I current what I personally think is that, like, if there was some type of like attempt to attempt to seize power or like rebellion from one of the militia groups, I think it would be squashed pretty quickly. I think that the regular Ukrainian military has been solidified uh, significantly uh, because of this war. So I, I think that there would definitely be, there wouldn't be anything that would kind of, you know, actually destabilize the country to like a significant degree. Yeah, you're probably right. Honestly, Ukraine might be the best military in Europe right now. I mean, they, they <laughs> yeah. I mean maybe not but like they got so much experience right now and like just like real experience and they you know they're obviously super tough they got western you know weapons high you know high speed shit i mean they, they might be like the in europe they might be like the best military i don't know yeah i, I mean i i would say and just going off like you know how this war ends uh I, I the problem the something that's, what's got me concerned is that it's I I don't see an outcome like I see, I think the most likely outcome is that Russia does something drastic at some point if things stay the way they are right now um, because Ukraine is beating them so badly and holding their territory which is great for them and I'm I'm you know I'm pro Ukrainian I you know all that stuff. But I'm just saying, like, you know, that's what's got me concerned is that the Kremlin escalates the war to to such a degree that it is no longer in the best interest of Western powers to support Ukraine in the war. You know, right, right, right. which goes back to the whole like nuke thing is like, you know, if that happens or something along those lines, it's like, you know, the Kremlin's basically like, all right, we've had enough. Look, this is like our war. Like all the rest of y'all stay out, let us do our thing. And then it's just like, okay, the ante's been like up so high. It's like, you know, the you know, the White House or you know, any of the uh Western European countries are like, yeah, you know what? <laughs> Matter of fact, we're done. We're not gonna like help them out anymore. Which right. would be unfortunate, don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that that's like I see that being the most likely outcome 
but not the most likely. I think that's going to be like very likely to occur. Um, like now, you that's like the risk to the the reward to risk or risk to reward just isn't worth it anymore. For, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which is why, like, I think that the, the 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 that's why the whole thing with like Wagner, like you know, the Wagner uprising, is like when that was occurring like the thought in the back of my mind is like this could be it like this could be like i like this could be like if 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 russia's destabilized and they can no longer support the war in ukraine this could be like the end of it i mean then you gotta ask then like the question is like okay well you know (laughs) if if like what happens to all russia's nukes if the country gets destabilized and there's a civil war and all that stuff but yeah Oh, dude, that <laughs> that might be like if if Russia fell into a civil war, that might be pretty bad too. Because then, who takes control of all the nuclear weapons? You know. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think that I think that that's at that point that the you know Western intelligence agencies would definitely uh, come in and do all they can to like you know kind of stop anything from going south too too far. Because that was the big question, I think, when when the USSR fell was, you know, <laughs> you know what happens to all these nuclear weapons that are like throughout Eastern Europe, dude. That, bro, that was that was a real thing, bro. Did did you see that? Um, it was a documentary on Netflix. It was Operation Odessa. Did you by any chance see that? No, no. What's it about? Oh, dude. Oh, dude. So these guys, like, it was a group of these guys in Miami, and they got into like the drug trade. They got into moving coke. And like when the when the Soviet Union fell, they somehow got in touch with these with these Russian dudes, these like Russian like generals or whatever, because they wanted to buy a submarine from them so they could move coke in like Russian submarines like from South America to Miami. And the fucking dude, the Russian generals were like trying to sell them nukes. They were like, yo, we got these nukes, like, you can buy. <laughs> and they were like, nah, like, we're good on the nukes, but, like, you got submarines. <laughs> <That sounds then, laughs> a... <laughs> dude, and then, like, one of them ended up over, like, he was supposed to bring them, like, a few million dollars for a sub, and he ended up, like, I don't know, he, like, took the money and, like, skirted off to Africa or some shit. I don't know, it was crazy. Like, he, he took the money and ran. But, bro, like... These guys were just were just willing to be like, hey, you guys want some nukes? Like, you know, like we got them for sale. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. I mean, could you imagine like being some type of like, I don't know, Miami, like cocaine kingpin and like you're in some <laughs> like nice club with like bottles and everything. And you're in, like the VIP section. It's like your dude comes up to you. And he's like, yo, so the what's what I got to tell you about the rush, the uh, the Russian sub thing. He's just like, oh, how's it going? He's like, well. They might sell us a sub, but like, are you interested in nuclear weapons, perhaps? And it's just like, it's like what, like, what is your reaction to that? It's like, bro, no, like, I, like, you know, it's like, why would you know? To me, I'm like, bro, if I was like, if I was in a position, I'd be like, dude, I'm already dealing with DEA and FBI. I don't need like CIA and the whole U.S. government down my bro, throat because I the brought last like a thing nuke. I need. <laughs> yeah, because I brought like a tactical nuke into Miami. Yeah, bro. Yeah, I don't know. I saw it, it was on Netflix. I don't think it's on Netflix anymore, but. When I watched it, I was like, yo, these guys are fucking lunatics, bro. Like, ah, man, crazy. I think that was like during the Pablo Escobar time, too. So, like, there was a lot of coke flowing around through Miami and shit. Yeah, for sure. That could have been how Pablo could have, like, kind of 
<laughs> taking over Colombia. Bro. He bought a nuke from, I don't know if he was dead at that point. Was that like 90, 91, 93 or whatever? Uh, when this happened? Yeah, I'm not sure. He, if, if it was around then, I don't know. I can't remember the timeline, but yeah. <laughs> He's just like only Colombia hostage. He's like, oh, I got the one nuke in this country. This country <laughs> yeah, is now mine. don't have nukes. I have them. Fuck you. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, dude. I actually I go to Colombia a lot because that's where my my wife's from. So I love the country. It's awesome. Um, they still have like a lot of uh, like like some of the areas I go to Medellin a lot. Some of the areas have like Pablo Escobar shit. Like it's crazy, bro. Some yeah, because like wasn't wasn't his whole thing was like go you on. Know, like he, he like the whole thing was he was like you know kind of like a Robin Hood figure to like a lot of the lower class. Yeah, dude, he he built neighborhoods and shit. He like and he would give money to like poor people. He would just like give them cash. Be like, here you go. Um, Hearts and minds. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's yeah. It's 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 interesting. I got I got to uh, take a tour of one of his old stash houses. It was pretty sick. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, where like, where'd you book this on? Like, like on TripAdvisor? It's like Pablo Escobar's coke, like the stash house, bro. No, and it's dude. like the reviews are like, oh, it's so great. There's still like a little bit of blow on the floor. Like five stars for sure. <laughs> nah, dude, it's funny, bro. So much of the economy, like, it's just around, goes around like stuff like that. There, like the, this place that had one of his old airplanes, one of his old helicopters that crashed. They had one of his old Mercedes, bro, that was shot up. Like, it still had the bullet holes and shit all over it. I was like, <laughs> yo. <laughs> what, well, what what happened to his, like, uh, that, like, prison he built for himself? Oh, Is yeah. Is that thing still there? I think it might still be there, but I think they might have turned it into something else. Like, they might have. <laughs> they, like, turned it into, like, an Airbnb? <laughs> <laughs> like, bro. Yeah, bro. And like he had his own he had his own like zoo and shit too. And yeah. uh the government came in and just like took it over and they like completely changed it. But yeah. Yeah, dude, so much of their economy is like it goes around that. So so there's like this um this place in Guatape or or something. It's like a giant fucking rock. And you climb up the rock and like on the top of it there's like beautiful view. Uh there's like food, drinks, whatever. And there's like some water, some waterways like right next to it. And, um, you know, a lot of the old narcos, they had houses like right on the water. And there's like boat tours to go look at their houses. <laughs> like, For real? Like, yeah, is it bro, like, a, like, are the houses like abandoned? Yeah, like abandoned old like narco houses. Like, um, like one of Pablo's houses was there. Um, I don't know if you ever heard of Gotcha. He was another big uh, mm-hmm. drug kingpin. Yeah, like like I, I I went on a boat tour, bro, and I got to see some of their houses and shit. It was crazy. What now? What what happened to the uh, what happened to the island that they had in the Bahamas that like Carlos later was just like on permanently, like just out there doing <laughs> like with like ten hookers and like kilos of coke. <laughs> Like, dude, said, can you go there, <laughs> dude? I don't know. Did, did you see that um that fire festival documentary? It oh was, yeah, uh, bro. Didn't they try and buy? The, they like, tried to buy that island, bro. <laughs> they tried to buy the island to throw their their like fake party on that island, but then it ended up like, getting moved to like a different island. I don't even. You know, know. you know what would happen if, if if that occurred is like, you know, like that they would try and like low key promo that they'd be like, yo. This is Pablo Escobar's old island. And then 
there'd be like some like i don't know people on twitter like journalists being like well actually carlos later lived there and he was a neo-nazi don't go to fire festival <laughs> or something like that bro carlos that guy's funny when you look into that guy like that fucking guy he was like a nazi but he was i think he was hispanic too or something like that guy was fucking out of his mind. Like, what the fuck are you doing, bro? <laughs> yeah. What was it? Is is he dead or is he still alive? I think he's dead. I'm pretty sure Carlos Later's dead. There are some okay. some of like Pablo's old hitmen that are still alive somehow. Like, I don't know how they're not all dead, but some of them some of them are still alive. I don't know. <laughs> no, that bro. I'm be... looking at his Wikipedia. He's still alive. I think. Oh shit! For real? <laughs> yeah, like he just got out of the criminal status, released from prison, June sixteenth, twenty twenty, after thirty three years in Get captivity. Get the fuck out of here! So he's just chilling right now. Carlos Later's just chilling. Yeah. Fuck! Wow, what a crazy world, dude. Yeah, he's gotta. Yo, he's gotta have Netflix trying to like kick down his door right now, trying to like get him to hop on camera or something. Bro, I was about to say, as a journalist, that might be the move. Head down to Colombia. <laughs> bro, I don't even know. You know how, like, like in terms of, I don't even think it would be sketchy. It would just be like, like, what type of questions do I ask him? Is like, you know, so what was it like being like a crazy neo-Nazi in the Bahamas <laughs> on an island with like a bunch of cocaine? And he'd just yeah. be like, yo, bro, this is the best like, five years of my life. Like, or yeah, something. It, He'd probably be like, dude, it was awesome. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, shit, bro. Yeah, I mean, dude, I, I love going to Colombia. I wish it, like, I don't know, maybe eventually at some point I'll try to get into journalism journalism or something because I would love to interview some people down there. It'd be super dangerous, though, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. That might not be. Yeah, good. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've heard, like, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing is, like, being a war correspondent, I've thought about it. I'm like, yeah, this is dangerous at times, but like, at least there are like, you know, two sides that are pretty well defined here. And it's like, you know, there are some rules and it's like, you know, whenever you enter into like, uh, like being like a, a, a journalist, like interviews, like, I don't know, that does things with like <laughs> the drug trade. It's like, bro, like, I don't know. I feel like that in that, in that instance, it's like, you know, there's, you really have to know the field if you're going to try and like even and like kind of like the etiquette if you're even try and like do something like that dude now that i'm thinking about it like so, just going down there like i don't know man if something goes sideways you're fucked like no one's coming to help you really like if if those guys like if you're somewhere with those guys and something goes sideways like that's it like you're not I don't know. Like, oh yeah, for sure. Like, like nobody, nobody's coming to help you. Like that's it. Like I can say the bigger cities are pretty safe. Like I go to Medellin a lot, and it, it's it's actually bro, it's super safe now. Like very nice city, this and that. But if if you like were talking to some people in in like one of the more remote areas, good luck. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's, that's a where's shot. the. Uh... Where's the the uh, the FARC located? Where where are they located in Colombia? Is it closer to Venezuela, like kind of so, in the forest? Or? So there are there are so FARC actually ended up splintering into a bunch of like different groups. I'm, I'm sure some of them still go like fall under FARC, but um the main the main FARC surrendered to the government a few years back. Yeah, um, yeah. So they splintered off. Uh, the main the main group there right now is the ELN. And they're currently in peace talks with the government. So, but there are like, 
they do kind of hang out by the border. Um, my wife knows. My wife, uh, she's from a town that's, like, close to Venezuela, like, right, right next to the border. And, um, dude, they fucking, they basically just, like, try to extort you, like, for all your shit. Like, they'll just, like, they hang out by the border. Anyone trying to cross, they, they try to take money from them. Um, you know, if they go into those little towns, they'll, like, kidnap, whatever. Um, stuff yeah, like that, yeah. you know, like little shit like that. But they're, they're also like heavily involved in the drug trade. Um, they get into skirmishes with the government, like the, you know, the regular government forces. Um, I don't know if you know much about like Colombia, bro, but their jungle is like for real. Like they like people wonder, like, you know, how can how can they still have like so much influence in different areas? Bro, that jungle is for real, like mountains, huge mountains thick vegetation like yeah that's that's how they can exert that influence bro nobody's getting in there dude <laughs> right right you know i always think because i'm in the military and um i'm I, every time i go to Colombia, i'm always like wow like i'm very impressed with the colombian military for being able to like since the 50s i think they've been at war and it's like they've been able to fight these wars in this crazy jungle on these huge mountains bro i would hate could you imagine being in the field fucking trying to set up a fighting position on a mountain in giant yeah. fucking vegetation with all these animals running around and all these bugs that could like, dude, all like a lot of mosquitoes, they have dengue season, Zika, chikungunya, like, bro, get the fuck out of here. I'd hate to fight a war <laughs> in that shit. <laughs> yeah, man, that would be awful. Kind of like, uh, be, I guess it would kind of be like Vietnam, maybe even worse. Yeah, dude, it'd be like Vietnam. Yeah, that would, oh. Fuck that, dude. Yeah, so I, I have like I have a deep respect for the Colombian military for sure, because I mean, well, because dude, not only are they fighting, you know, the ELN, they're fighting the narcos too. The narcos have their own armies, like they've and they've got great weapons that you know they get like probably better than the weapons the military has. Right. And, you know, they go out in the jungle and they fight those guys, and it's like holy shit. <laughs> oh yeah, impressive. dude. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, man. Yeah, so, you know, it's actually interesting. I was looking through your Instagram. I saw you were in Colorado. You you were interviewing someone, and in, was it in Colorado? Um, there was, like, oh, you're a, the you're Native tribe or something? Oh, no, dude, they were, uh, <laughs> that's, like, a kind of, like, a, a hippie group called, like, the the Rainbow Family, the Living oh, Light. Oh, hippie group. Oh. Yeah, and they were, they had, like, their, uh, they have like something every year called the gathering where they all uh they have it in different spots in the u.s every year and they like go and like camp out for like a week or whatever uh, um, but there was like i don't know like thousands of people and yeah it was that was when i was hired to go film like uh you know uh small documentaries uh and so we were on our way up to uh seattle to um film for a to, to film a Johnny Rocket, um, uh, Jonathan Wilds, or Wild Jonathan Wild. He's a you know what I'm talking about. He he uh, he's the guy that makes the homemade three D printed rocket launchers. Right. Yeah, yeah. I know that dude. Yeah. But yeah, yeah man, it was like we were in Col like the Colorado backcountry and filming and like, interviewing these uh these uh, this like uh this group and it was pretty interesting. Uh, it was really cool. It was pretty chill. Um. It was... Yeah, they they just like taking psychedelics all day and like fucking chilling. 
Yeah, it's actually pretty interesting. Like there was like it kind of was really all over the spectrum from what I could tell is you had people who were like, yo, this dude's like probably smoking meth and is actually super sketch. And then you had people who were just like there with their family and they weren't doing any drugs. It was just like it was very communal. Um, I remember like the, the most interesting thing I saw was probably like they they the they're they're very like open minded. Um, and the, but the one thing that they did have was like, Hey, listen, if you're going to be like boozing, if you're gonna be drinking alcohol, you have to like be inside of this very specific camp. Like they wouldn't, they didn't, they, they weren't big like drinkers. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. So, so, they, so it's like a community, like they have their own, like, like, I guess area where they, they live uh, where, where can you find this documentary like where do I, is it on youtube or something um i don't know if it's still up because like i was filming for somebody else i don't know if they if they took the video down i have to look but yeah they the way they um the way they work is it kind of like they have they're just like uh they're regular people like you know they kind of live regular lives most of them and then like every year they kind of get together for like grand jamboree or whatever and then it's in different spots and they'll get together for like a week or so and they'll have like it's it's insane because they'll just pull up in this like in like generally like in the national forest somewhere and they'll just have they'll set up like amazing infrastructure to feed everybody um and so it's all communal so that's the thing is like you know there's no like bartering or anything like that for like goods, even though like they, they literally set up a society for like a week where everything is like free. So oh, that's interesting. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to look out. I'm going to look out for it. Cause I would, I would actually like to see that documentary. Cause that like looking through your page, that was the first time I've ever even like heard of that, heard of something like that. I mean, but yeah, I, mean, it, I thought it was a it, crime, it, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, they definitely they do have. I think that was something that, that was kind of controversial about that. Them, I remember, was that they, I think that they have their own religion, but it's like not like super, like not everybody that shows up to it is like, and and it, it, it adheres to it. But I think that they have like a, they have like a council or something. If I remember correctly, they have like a council of like elders or something like that that will kind of like plan things out, even though their whole like their whole their whole thing is that like they're not organized. It's just kind of this communal thing. Uh, but I remember them. I think there was, they got into some controversy because they were they were like making claims about like something to do with like Native American culture. Like they were like descendants. I, I don't know. It was it was it was kind of weird. And I don't know. But yeah, I think that's why they had like some of the, you would see like some Native American influences and in the stuff that they would like wear or like you know do. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I'm gonna look out for that, man. <laughs> yeah, I think I think they they come they fall under like uh like New Age spiritualism. So okay, did you have a, a documentary when you were in Ukraine? Like, is that on YouTube or anything? Or um yeah so i all the footage i took um i've released some of it a little bit i i was working on it i was going back through all my footage and like editing it uh but to be totally honest like i i mean i could put it into like a total documentary it's just like you know i kind of had like this like intense feeling of like imposter syndrome because i knew that like if i was to make the documentary and if i was to be totally like honest with it the only thing that i could really like that the documentary could really convey was more of like you know it's the human suffering uh of the people there and then 
you know, me being the, uh, like a young independent war correspondent who's this is like his first like time working as a war correspondent and like, you know, kind of like my personal um, uh, inexperience and like how I reacted to like, you know, being around like, you know, heavy fighting for the first time and stuff like that. And I just I when I was thinking about it, I, to be honest, I thought it was like kind of disrespectful. And I was like, you know, I, I don't want to at all. Like if, if I'm making a documentary about something like that, like it, it should not be about me at all. It should be about uh, the the people themselves who are like going through everything, you know. Uh, okay, I see. I see. I don't know. I feel like you still it could still come out really good, but I respect the decision for sure. Um, when you were there, did, were you did you get to go in like the trenches with them and like see see that or no? Uh, yeah. So. Well, where, where I, I where there was when I was in Kharkiv, um, I went to a forward operating base that was. I think I think that's the only time that I was like legit. Like that that was the only time whenever, like I was actually like on the line line like itself, um, and so we got I got access to it. I was able to see kind of like what they were doing out there and we went up to their full like we had the ford operating base and then we went further up to their positions and they, they at where they were there they weren't i didn't see any trenches uh because they were like there was still like a town so they were kind of just holed up in different houses and stuff um mm, mm. yeah but i mean in in the dome boss there were there were like multiple areas where there were some trenches uh, that I saw and I like, hopped into, but none of them were like being actively fought over um, in the Dome Boss. So, oh, uh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, damn man, that's super interesting. So, yeah, um, bro. any any plans to go back? No, right? Not not in the near future. I know. No, I not before, yeah, but... not in the near future. The right now, what I'm kind of I'm just what I do is like I don't post I don't post on my Instagram much anymore just because I don't have anything to post like I personally did. Um, but I'm I'm writing pretty much every day like articles and stuff for uh, Atlas News on his on their website. And, oh, um, sick! Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's I'm involved with them. Uh, I'm one of their writers, and so I'm uh, I'm just kind of working with them. And then you know, as a, as the company grows, uh, hopefully uh, there'll be like funding and opportunities to get back on the ground uh, for them. Uh, so that's like kind of what I'm looking to, looking forward to. So, oh, dude, that'd be sick. You'll have some like you'll have some more like backing, you know, some like finances behind you. Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, that's the thing is like you know it all boils down to like how difficult it is to like sustain you know, being on the ground. It doesn't really matter how much you you love it, you know. It's just like you know getting into like spots like that and like to get like a good story or you know do do whatever you want to you know to do quality journalism it's it's difficult enough um but it's 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 even more difficult whenever you don't have like you know a big name behind you or like you know proper funding right is there anywhere else in like besides the ukraine russian conflict that you would like to cover like you'd go like to go there and cover uh yeah uh off the top of my head uh iraqi kurdistan uh for sure yeah iraqi kurdistan uh and then i would really like to do this is something i could do now i just you know been kind of lazy and haven't gotten to it is kind of like uh do more work on like uh different extremist groups in the united states and uh on on both sides uh because where i went to college uh in, in charleston south carolina 
Um, I remember it was really interesting because there was that Charleston's really cool, not cool, but it's interesting because uh, Charleston has a pretty big presence uh, with the uh, the Black Panther Party or the Neo Black Panther Party. Um, Black, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Black Israelites. I've met them, and then also Neo Confederates as well. Um, so like, I've seen them all at, like different protests and stuff, and like try to interview them and like different counter protesters. Uh, they're really cagey. Um, generally which is understandable uh but i think south carolina has the the highest number of like militia groups in the united states if i'm correct on that um, oh dude I, I believe it yeah bro. <laughs> i 100 believe that <laughs> yeah. um it's funny uh you went to what is it the university of charleston or, or something uh college of charleston yeah college of charleston yeah dude i go i actually go to charleston sometimes because i have a friend that uh He's a chef over there right now. One of my one of my best friends. I can't oh, yeah? remember the name of the hotel that he works out of. He's like a chef in one of their restaurants, but it's one of the um one of like the nicest hotels in Charleston. I can't remember the name, but yeah, I was actually there. I was there like six months ago. I love Charleston. Yeah, um, it's a, it's a cool city. It's really pretty. Um, it really is. Yeah, for sure. Charleston's awesome. I was in uh, I was in Savannah for like two years um with the army i was over in uh, i was working on helicopters over there and so uh, charleston was like an hour and a half away so i'd go up there every now and then visit him love that oh yeah 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 Yeah, for sure yeah it's awesome man yeah so uh yeah man i got nothing else um is there anything else you wanted to mention i think i'm good i appreciate you having me on man it's been we've had some good conversations so yeah, for sure, man. Thanks for coming on. And uh, yeah, dude, if you if you do start like interviewing, you know, some groups in the states, like if you, if you do start doing that, let me know because that'd be awesome. I'd love to to see what you you know what you put out from that because that's that's really something that like living in the states, people here don't really think about too much. I don't know why, but there's a lot of issues in this country, and there's a lot of extremist groups that you know, people just don't really think about on a regular basis. So I'd love to see yeah. you know, whatever content you put out, you know, it'd be awesome. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that, you know, in this, with this upcoming election cycle, we're definitely going to see a lot of uh, interesting actors come out of the, uh, the woodwork. So nah, dude, that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> yeah, for sure. We could, talk- <laughs> we could talk about that for another like hour and a half. <laughs> yeah. But, all right, man, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, man. All right, later.